On this episode of 7 Minutes in Heaven with the Scientist, because everyone is a little bit curious, we dive deep into the science of this political election season. We talk with Dr. Lisa Fazio about the relationship between misinformation and our memories. Then we talk to Dr. Kurt Gray about mind perception, how we perceive the moral minds of political others. And finally, we talk with Dr. Victoria Pagan about the history of conspiracy theories, why they come up, and whether or not we are among lizard people. Hold on to your brains. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the first ever Seven Minutes in Heaven with a Scientist. I'm Annie. And I'm Lauren. And on this show, we spend seven-ish intimate minutes with our favorite scholars. Not in a weird way, though. We just stay up late reading their research papers, excluding all other human contact. That's not weird. We just really like science. Yeah, we're just like two weird lady nerds who really like science. We really like science. And this isn't technically our first episode. No, it is not. We launched the first seven minutes in heaven with a scientist because everyone is a little bit curious at Frank 2016. That's right. And now we are using the magic of the internet to bring the show directly to your ear holes. Your ear holes are so lucky. So lucky. In each episode, we explore issues that you care about by talking to your favorite researchers. Not only that, we tell you how to use that research so that you can actually drive social change. That's right, because we here at Frank don't settle for small change. Hell no. Hell no. So Lauren, what are we talking about today? What is the only thing anyone's talking about today? Um, sushi? Wrong. Climate change? You're wrong. Politics. Politics. Oh my gosh, politics. Okay, so we're just wrapping up the spookiest time of the year, election season. We're all presumably still here, although there have been so many competing claims that I'm sure our very existence will be called into question soon. That's right. It feels like 2016 has been like hashtag rest in peace facts, right? I miss facts. I miss facts. A lot of this election has been about fact-checking, and I'm beginning to wonder how the fact-checkers have time to sleep at night. I know. Every single day they're releasing new reports, fact-checking Clinton, Trump. And everybody else. And everyone else. But that's job security. Totes. But even with all of the fact-checking, we still seem to be afloat in a sea of bizarre claims that people still somehow believe. You know what? I bet there's science on that. There probably is. There is. Lisa Fazio is here to help us. (gasps) Smooth transition. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Fazio. Thank you so much for talking with us. We're really looking forward to talking to you. So you are an assistant professor of psychology and human development at Vanderbilt University, where you study cognition and cognitive development. How did you get started in that? Yeah, so it all started back in undergrad. I took this course on trauma and memory, and it was my first experience really realizing that our memories weren't these verbatim videotape recordings of real events, but that different things could change our memories and shape our memories and that they could actually be incorrect. Um, And so that got me really interested on how people learn this incorrect information and then how we can correct it. So that's what I've continued to study in grad school and beyond is how people learn new information, how they pick up errors, and then what can we do to correct those errors. That's so interesting. So these days you do a lot of great work in your lab around the role of memory in shaping how we learn information and misinformation. Is that right? Yeah, so we call our lab the Building Knowledge Lab, and we're really interested in knowing more about how our memory processes help us to learn new information, 
um, what happens to allow errors to enter our general knowledge base, and then what we can do to correct those errors. So one thing that we're really interested in is how testing can affect our memory. So we think about tests as a way to measure what we know or don't know about the world, but really every time we take a test, we're also changing what we know about the world. So there's a lot of research showing that students who take a test over information remember that information a lot better than if they just um, reread the same information in a textbook. But we've actually shown that there's also some negative effects of testing, particularly when you use multiple choice tests. So every time a student sees a multiple choice question, they see the correct answer, but they also see three or more plausible incorrect responses. And it turns out that being exposed to those incorrect errors, sometimes you'll choose those as the correct answer, and sure enough, on a later test, you'll be more likely to produce those incorrect responses than if I hadn't given you a test at all. So this act of giving you a multiple choice test has actually introduced errors into your knowledge base. Wow. So just seeing incorrect information sticks with you in your memory. And then when you see it again, you believe it to be true. Yeah. So what seems to happen with these multiple choice tests is that you've kind of convinced yourself that your incorrect answer was actually correct. And so that's why you'll use it later on. But we've actually also shown that just seeing a statement multiple times makes you think that it's more true. So this is called the illusory truth effect. And what people typically find is that if you read a statement twice, you think that that statement is more true than a statement that you've only read once. That's really interesting, but kind of scary. But what does this mean for those of us who are exposed to all sorts of political misinformation in our Twitter feeds? Does this mean we're going to start believing it's true? It implies that we might. So what we found in our most recent study was that people showed this illusory truth effect, even if they had kind of knowledge available in memory to tell them that these statements were false. So we'd give people a pretest or a post-test where they tell us that they know that the skirt that Scottish men wear is called a kilt. So they know this correct information. Then we have them read the statement, the skirt that Scottish men wear is a sari, and they either read it just once or they read it two times. And the people who read it twice reliably thought that the statement was more true than students who only read it one time. So again, even though you've got this prior knowledge, reading it twice makes you think that it's more true. And what we think is going on here is that when you read something multiple times, each time you read it, it becomes more fluently processed. It's more easy to read, and our brains seem to misattribute this sense of fluency to a sense of truth, which makes sense. Like most of the time when we hear something multiple times, it's because it's something true in the world. But this can work against us with this misinformation where the more times we hear it, the more we fluently process it and the more we think it's true. Wow, that's so fascinating. You know, there's so much misinformation being repeated in this election season. So I'm wondering, does fact checking even matter? Yeah, it's a great question. So we know for simple facts it does. So when I give people feedback after these multiple choice tests, sure enough, they'll stop um, repeating the incorrect answers and they'll learn the correct answers. But it seems to be much more difficult when the information you're trying to correct is a part of someone's belief system or their values. So there's this great study that Lewandowski and colleagues did right when the second Iraq war was starting. And they looked at students from the U.S., 
Australia and Germany and had them rate how true they thought different statements were. And these were all things that had been reported in the news media and then quickly retracted. So in the early days of the war, there was a lot of confusion and newspapers sometimes reported things that they later said weren't actually true. And in the U.S., students showed decent memory for these events and even that they had been retracted, but they still rated those false events as being fairly true, that they actually did did happen. Whereas in Australia and Germany, where people were much more skeptical of the war, they would remember the event being presented, they would remember the retraction, and then they would rate the event as not have actually happened. So it seems that people's beliefs about the war really shaped how they viewed those retractions and how it affected their memory. Okay, wow. So you're saying that people's worldviews can actually impact how they remember information. Is that what you think is going on there? Yeah, it seems to be that kind of correcting these misinformation beliefs is really tough when it's connected to people's beliefs and values. Wow, that is fascinating. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. We really enjoyed having you here. And we can't wait to talk to you again. And maybe next time it won't be in a closet. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So what did we learn? When we read or see something more than once, we begin to believe it's true just because we remember it. And if you're going to try and connect that information, you might end up going up against people's worldviews. You all are going to hear us say this a lot, but it seems to always be about people's worldviews. Who they are, what they value, and how they see themselves. It seems to shape everything. And speaking of worldviews, apparently they also shape how we perceive the minds of others. Damn, Lauren, you are on point with your transition. I know, thank you. All right, let's listen to Dr. Kurt Gray. He studies how we perceive minds, and maybe he can shed some light on this. Hi, Dr. Kirk Gray. Thank you so much for joining us for this interview. We're so excited to talk to you. Happy to be here. So you are a social psychologist and you study morality and emotions, right? That's right. So how did you get started in this? I got started, oddly enough, in Australia. I took a year off after college to surf and bartend. And while I was there, I realized that there were things beyond surfing and and drinking in the night and decided that I might want to do something a little more intellectual and that would be uh, go to grad school to study morality and, and how we understand others. So you hung up your wetsuit and left the party life to go study the minds of others. That's right. Yeah, I went to work with Dan Wagner, a social psychologist. How, how noble of you. So you work in moral psychology research, and within that body of work, some argue that liberals and conservatives have different moral minds, uh, meaning they make their judgments based off of their different values. But you disagree with that. Yeah. So it's clear that, that liberals and conservatives do have different values, and they do have lots of moral disagreements, as is clear in Congress. But ultimately, no matter what your political orientation, people have the same moral mind. And that moral mind is based ultimately on perceptions of harm. So if you consider something like HB2, the recent bill in North Carolina about transgender bathroom use, that bill seems to be about different things for liberals and conservatives. So conservatives seems to be about strange sexuality that they don't understand. And for liberals, it seems to be about safety in the restroom. But in fact, for conservatives, it's also about safety in the restroom. So when they passed the bill, they did it ultimately to protect what they saw as a threat to their daughters and wives. And liberals see harm as well. And so really, political disagreements are ultimately about 
seeing harm in different places. It's about disagreements of perceiving harm. That's interesting. I know that in some of the research, some scholars say that when we're presented with information, we have gut emotional reactions that we then try to reason. And harm is one of the reasons that we use to justify our reactions. But you're saying that harm is that gut emotional reaction that we have to this information. That's right. So we also use it in in reasoning, which makes sense because it is part of that gut intuition. And those kind of perceptions of harm happen very quickly. So we have a bunch of studies, but one study asks people to judge the immorality of a variety of acts, acts like harmful acts like murder or assault and abuse, but also things like prostitution or pornography or gossip. And what we find is that people rate the harmfulness of those actions even quicker than they rate the morality, suggesting that it's harm that's feeding in to the moral judgments. One study that I think is maybe the most fun, we present people faces of children and get them to rate how much suffering those children are showing after we prime them with something immoral, like prostitution. And what we find is that after you think of something immoral, you kind of automatically perceive those faces as more filled with suffering. And this, this explains why in moral debates, people almost always say, think of the children. It's always the children that we're protecting. And so we find that that happens even at this very rapid automatic level. So we're, you know, within milliseconds, we're, we're judging the harm of information we're presented. That's right. And linking it to suffering in children, in adults, in society, right? So harm can take many forms, but ultimately that's the basis of our moral judgments. So speaking of morality, you have done some work on how people perceive the moral minds of others, and you say it goes in one of two ways, right? That's right. This work is called moral typecasting, just like actors in Hollywood are typecast into specific roles. So it's hard to imagine someone like Leonard Nimoy, right, who who played Spock when he was alive, as being like the fun-loving uncle. We see him as like very cold and rational. Likewise, it's hard to see child actors who seem like sensitive and tender as being cold and rational like Spock. And so we actually cast people into moral roles, much like kind of Spock and child actors. We see them as either the kind of people who do moral acts, who think and plan and act, or as people who receive moral acts. So they can feel and suffer, and so they're victims. The term for these is moral patients, like victims, or moral agents, like perpetrators. And we tend to see people as either one or the other. Wow, so we're placing people within boxes based off of how we're perceiving them. How have you seen this play out in the political election going on right now? It's interesting. I think we tend to see political candidates because they're in positions of power as just pure moral agents. So if you see Trump or Clinton, right, you see them as heroes or villains, depending on what side you're on. And that's certainly in the rhetoric, right? No one really has sympathy for political candidates. No one wonders if they're suffering, right? We just see them as agents of good or evil. On the other hand, their supporters are often seen well, as, as good or evil, right, as good on your side and evil on the other, but also sometimes as moral patients, as victims. You think the other side has been duped, right, by their evil political candidate. And if only you could kind of educate them or save them, right, they could see the truth. So we certainly use moral typecasting in these political arenas. I know. I totally see this on social media. In the comment section, I see other people pointing fingers at the others 
labeling them, putting them in these boxes. I feel like this really does kind of explain the comment section. What are your thoughts on that? I think it does. And I think it's easy to put people in the boxes when we don't have personal experience. So how many Clinton supporters have actually met a Trump supporter or vice versa? And I think the way around these kind of perceptions is to have personal experience with folks who are on the other side. And sometimes this might be frustrating, but at least it gives you a sense that other people you're talking to have a full moral mind. And I think that's the key, addressing many of these political disagreements. So if we can just talk to others and, you know, hear from their perspective, then it can sort of open up that box and we won't place them in it or, you know, have a certain perception of their mind. One thing that research reveals is how powerfully our thoughts follow our language. And so oftentimes when we describe people, right, we use words that take away half of their mind. So we see them as either only an agent or a patient. And I think when we're in the comment section, for instance, of of blogs or newspapers, it's very easy to just say that someone's evil or someone's weak. But I think by appreciating their full mind, by acknowledging that they're thinking and planning, but also feeling, we can kind of appreciate them as a full human being. Well, that definitely gives us a lot to think about. And I will definitely stop throwing up middle fingers in the comment section of Facebook. I I seem to be doing more harm than good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we can't wait to see what comes next from you. Great. Thanks very much for having me. So Lauren, what did we learn? Let's summarize. So we are all motivated by harm and we see our political others as mindless. Yeah, we tend to see people as either good or evil and then we dementalize them. And we can overcome this by connecting with others, talking to others, giving them a mind, and not using language that others the others. Don't other the others. Don't other the others. This is interesting because it actually reminds me of an article I saw in the New York Times that argued Donald Trump must be really lonely. And it was weird because I could feel my perception shifting. It was like I realized for the first time that even though he's a major politician and a celebrity, he's a person. He has emotions, and maybe even painful ones like loneliness. Deep, Lauren. It is deep. Doesn't it suck when science makes you realize you have to change? Yeah. We can't dementalize people. It doesn't help. No, we can't. Well, I know it will make you feel better, though. What? Lizard people. I mean, conspiracy theories about lizard people. Go on. Well, it probably won't actually make you feel better. Oh, well, let's listen to Dr. Victoria Pagan talk about the history of conspiracy theories. We'll see. And we'll learn about lizard people. Today we have Victoria Pagan, a professor of classics at the University of Florida. And we're so excited to have you in the studio with us today. Usually we're calling people on the phone, but you're actually here with us. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So Victoria has written extensively about conspiracy theories in Latin literature and Roman times. She's currently teaching a course at the University of Florida about conspiracy theories, which is amazing, and I wish they had that when I was an undergrad. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got interested in this topic? Yeah, it's not something you wake up and decide to study, to be honest. Um, I wrote my dissertation on the Roman historian Tacitus, and I was supposed to embark on this career as a Roman historian. But at my dissertation defense, the advisor pointed to one page where I had written about three different conspiracies and three different women involved in these conspiracies. And he just sort of on the side said, you know, there's probably some interesting work to be done here. And here I am, say, 20 years later, still thinking about it. So it was this rather indirect way that I came to conspiracy theory. 
So now you study the history of conspiracy theories. And we're curious, what are some of the themes that you found in your studies? How do we know them when we see them? Yeah, so conspiracy theories across time appear to always be an attempt to explain why bad things happen to good people. So if you look at an example in ancient Rome, in the year 64, the city was devastated by a terrible fire. Now, we know that fires are accidental, and we accept that the city of Chicago, for instance, burned because Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern in the barn and the city went down. But in ancient Rome, this fire was really quite devastating and ruined the lives of many innocent people. And so to explain why this bad thing happened to so many good people, there was a turn toward a conspiracy theory that that it had been done by the Christians. And so they were actually persecuted for this fire. So do you have any examples of that happening today? In modern times, a good example would be the truther movement with 9-11. We see a terrible event happen right before our eyes, and there is an explanation for it, but it's not enough. And to really understand why such tragedy hit so many innocent, good people, there's this turn to conspiracy theory. Wow. That's so, intense. <laughs> so a second overarching theme, though, that we see from ancient Athens all the way through to today's news is that uh, conspiracy theory is a really powerful rhetorical tool. And it's usually wielded against an enemy to cast that person in a very bad light and put them in a situation that they can't recover from. So once you call somebody a conspirator, the more they try to deflect that charge, the more guilty they look. So across time, we see that conspiracy is a charge that is leveled that can't be refuted. So all you have to do is just continue with this. It's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy, and there's nothing that that person can, can do. Yes, it, it, um, it's sort of an endless loop. Oh, wow. A continuous loop. We're definitely seeing that right now in the election cycle. There are definitely parallels. Wow. Are there certain conditions that make us more susceptible as a society to conspiracy theories? Because it seems like there's a lot going on, and why now? That's a really good question. And conspiracy theories, we see them thrive best in times when a society is undergoing some kind of major shift, some kind of huge ground shift in terms of the economy or politics or social change. And so we might think of the founding of our country at a very of a time of great political turmoil when the conspiracy theory was passed around about the Illuminati, and that was a, a time that was full of great political change. In the 1960s, as the United States was undergoing the, the enormous shifts, social shifts involved with the civil rights movement, that's the same time that we see the conspiracy theories rising up about the assassination of JFK. And even today, as we're looking at the greatest economic disparity our country has seen, the greatest um, disparity in wealth distribution, we're seeing a greater susceptibility to conspiracy theories. So these are really times when rather than look at the hard issues and rather than face the major changes that are happening in society, it's easier to just look at conspiracy theories and talk about those rather than engage directly with what's happening. So whenever we see huge shifts in society or great disparity, people turn to conspiracy theories to make sense of their world. 
They do, and it's partly to regain a sense of agency in a time when the world is falling apart. But it's also just a sort of a way of deflecting from the the really hard issues at hand and it works as kind of a substitute for actual political engagement. So are there things that we can do to make sure that as a society we don't fall prey to these conspiracy theories? Yeah, because it seems like disruption and social change are always going to be there. So how do we protect ourselves? That's right. And to avoid the paranoia or just the unbounded suspicion that comes with conspiracy theory, it's important to maintain as wide an information network as possible. Paranoid people tend to have very small information networks. They only pay attention to certain people and certain information outlets. To avoid falling prey to conspiracy theory, the wider your information network, the more open you are to different sources of information, the more you'll challenge your assumptions and not let yourself fall prey to conspiracy theory. So really it's quite simply having an open mind and keeping open channels of communication. That's really interesting because there's research that says that we're sort of isolating ourselves in terms of information. We only follow certain people on Twitter. We only like certain things on Facebook. So essentially you're saying we need to start opening that up and following more people who think differently. Exactly. And that is part of that turn towards the isolation is also part of a substitution for actual genuine political engagement. If we were genuinely engaged, we would have listen to all different types of people. That's a more genuine type of engagement. And so to avoid falling prey to conspiracy theory, you need to follow people on Twitter who don't necessarily agree with you, who will challenge your assumptions and make sure that you don't fall into these traps. That's so cool. So we use our Twitter feed as like a real town hall where we actually have to listen to each other. Yes, yes. Wow. I guess I have to start following more people on Twitter then. Yes, we do. Maybe I believe in conspiracy theories right now and I don't even know it. You wouldn't know it. That's part of the conspiracy. Oh my gosh. So, are conspiracy theories always bad? Is there a silver lining to this at all? There are some who would argue that we need conspiracy theorists in our society, that they do provide a positive value for us. First of all, they'll challenge us to make sure that we have the very best possible explanations for events. So as painful as it is, we need the conspiracy theorists to make sure that we understand exactly what happened on 9-11 and that they force us to get the very best explanation for terrible events. One could also argue that we need conspiracy theorists to sort of vouchsafe our democracy and make sure that we are a society that is open to all forms of discourse. We can't shut down con the discourse of conspiracy theories, so their very presence makes sure that we stay an open, transparent, liberal democracy that listens to all different types of information. So even though they're frustrating, by ensuring that they have the right to speak, we ensure everybody can speak. Exactly. And of course, sometimes the conspiracy theorist will get it right. So thanks to vigilant citizens, we've unraveled things like Watergate, uh, the Iran-Contra affair. Thanks to Edward Snowden, we know that a conspiracy that was actually predicted in 1999, that the NSA was monitoring 
communications in the U.S. and transatlantic communications? Well, guess what? It turned out to be true. So the conspiracy theorist can save the republic from certain dangers, but we cannot ever forget that conspiracy theory is based at first on conjectures, which easily turn into stereotypes, which swiftly turn into prejudices that are very corrosive and damaging to society. So I wouldn't want to say that conspiracy theorists are good, but as long as they're here, we should make the best of them. It seems like a really heavy price to pay for the sort of safeguarding um, function that they serve. That's right. Some would say that it's better to have a conspiracy theorist on the off chance that one in 100 are right than to not have the conspiracy theorist and that one time we're, we're in trouble as a republic. I mean, democracy is always about these, these trade-offs, so it's just keeping it in check, it seems. Right. So we, while we're talking about this. Yeah, we've been dying to ask you, should we say it in unison? Yes. OK. <laughs> What's the craziest? <laughs> Never mind, you can just say it. <laughs> Okay, what is the most outlandish conspiracy theory you've heard of? Well, there are a lot. Um, you know, there's aliens and Fidel Castro, and there's always the grassy knoll. But I would say the craziest thing I've heard is that we are being controlled by a species of lizard people. And these are humans that have reptile DNA in their brains, and they are controlling us without our knowing it. So how do you recognize a lizard person? We really need to know this now. You, you do. So apparently the, the big clue is that they have eyes that are blue or green or change from blue to green. And this is a, a big sign that you're looking at a potential lizard person whose you know, true nature is hidden, but every now and then it comes out and you can actually capture it in a photograph. So when you go to these websites about lizard people, one of our great lizard people these days is Barack Obama, you know, our blue-eyed president, right? So I think what we're seeing here is that while it's fun and quirky and just completely outlandish, it's an absolute deflection away from what's really bothering people, which is racial tension. And conspiracy theory is, again, sort of a red herring. Instead of talking about the racial tensions that we have in this country, it gets deflected onto this outlander story. Thank you so much for talking with us. We will now have to challenge everything we know, even ourselves. Are and we lizard people? We may be, but we also need to be more open-minded in terms of what we look at online. Exactly. Fine. I'll do it. Well, this was fun. I mean, maybe not fun, but necessary. What did we learn? Well, repetition plus partisanship equals misinformation. And just because we disagree with people doesn't mean we should stop thinking of them as people. And widening our information networks can help us avoid things like conspiracy theories. And connection with people really is key. Communication. Communication. And I learned that lizard people may walk among us. How do I know you're not a lizard person? Well, I just know. That's just what a lizard person would say. Go.